Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Benny Cara is a deputy head teacher, speaker, coach and trainer on the topics of language, literature, leadership, diversity, inclusion, curriculum, assessment, teaching and learning. She's a Teach First ambassador, founding member of the Chartered College of Teaching and the author of Diversity in Schools, which is published by Corwin, a book that we're going to talk about today. Welcome, Benny. Hello, it's good to be here. Well, thank you so much for coming. And I just wanted to say I'm holding your book in my hand, Diversity in Schools. And it's one of those books that when you're reading it, you start making notes and then you realize you've written everything down because everything (laughs) is so good. And then you stop making notes and then you wonder how you're going to tell the world about it because it's so good. (laughs) And it's obviously a little guide for teachers, one of the books in that series, but it's fantastically well put together. And, you know, it's one of those books a teacher can just come back to all the time. So I've decided that we can sort of structure the conversation around that book today, if that's okay. That sounds absolutely fine. And and I thank you for your lovely comments. It does make a difference to hear that it's had an impact. So on the first page of your book, it says diversity is an urgent topic within schools. I'm sure everyone sort of understands a little bit about the why, but can you tell us from your perspective why you wrote the book, why this is such a pressing issue? Of course. I mean, for me, I've been doing this work around diversity in schools for a little while now. So I recognised there wasn't a book out there that dealt with some of the issues that I was coming across in schools. And having worked in schools for 20 years, you know, you recognise as much as the education system has moved on and is more progressive, there are still some huge gaps in what we talk about, particularly in the classroom. And, you know, where we have international events like the murder of George Floyd, and the stories around racism and homophobia that you get in the press, you start to realise that actually schools are the kind of final frontier in all of this. And the reason it's urgent is not just because of those international events. I never wanted the book to be a kind of knee-jerk reaction to things that were happening across the world. Only recently, there was an article in The Guardian about far-right radicalization of children and the impact of the internet to accessing materials that are kind of unfathomably difficult, unfathomably awful, in fact. And so it for me, teachers being aware of what diversity means, how to really create an inclusive environment in schools and to kind of combat that tide of unfiltered information that children have, that was really important to me. 
And these poor teachers, there's a lot to keep up with. It's mind boggling. I mean, you've just mentioned far right radicalization of young people online. Every day, there seems to be a new topic that teachers are expected to cover in PSHE. And it can be really overwhelming because it's such a changing landscape. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that teachers can fix all of society's ills, but we can mitigate the circumstances that our children are in. And, you know, where we see a gap, you know, teachers are wonderful human beings. They will try to fill that gap. And for me, it's important that teachers know how to do that systematically rather than as a reaction to what's going on. I don't pretend that, you know, we can solve the problems within the classroom, but certainly we can start to sow seeds of ideas within the classroom that mean children will grow up having a sense of criticality, have a sense of what it means to live in our society and to function in our society coherently and cohesively. So it's interesting, the title of the book is Diversity in Schools. Mm. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, the first thing I thought of was race and ethnicity. Mm. But actually, your book helps us understand what we mean by diversity. So let's talk about that word, which Mm -hmm. is so much more inclusive, please. Thanks, Benny. No worries. So the word diversity, I deliberately use that because my approach is intersectional. Intersectionality is a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in the 1980s. And it was a term that defined the overlapping identities that people have. So, you know, we are not one thing. And Crenshaw talks about the structural barriers that are very different between somebody who is an Asian man and a white woman, a person with a disability and a person with a disability who is LGBT. And so for me, the work has always been very, very intersectional. And, you know, the criticism came to say, why are you not talking about decolonization? And one of the things I said was, you know, decolonization is really important, but it's just one strand of what diversity is. And diversity is misunderstood as a term. I think some people think of it as a fluffy term. This idea that it doesn't tackle the difficult issues, it's just about representation. And it's not really, because underneath all of that is a real kind of psychological imperative, a psychological shift that's required to understand how difference can be positive, how difference can contribute to the fabric of our society. So that's why diversity is the word that's being used here. So it does cover LGBT, it does cover gender reassignment, it does cover ableism, it does cover race and gender. So it is all encompassing and certainly something that I feel very passionate about. I think your book really helped me understand that I think you talk about diversity as inclusive of of narratives on age, disability, gender, race, sex, sexuality. And that is incredibly helpful that the image of the rainbow comes in very much that it's about individuality and it's about appreciating and understanding and caring about Mm. other people's stories and experiences. And one of the things that I'm conscious of is the research out there on the impact of stories that if we don't hear those range of stories, that we're less likely to be empathetic. There's research that shows that once you hear someone's story, that personal story, that you are much more likely to feel empathy with them and to see them as an individual as opposed to part of a group. So hearing the story of somebody who has a disability moves you away from grouping people with disabilities together as this kind of homogenous mass. 
and moves you to thinking about their particular experiences. So it is a, a powerful construct there. It reminded me, I'm sure you're aware of the concept of the human library that I think mm. originated in Denmark, where sort of people tell their, their stories in front of other people and people are able to ask, the audience is able to ask them anything mm. at all. And I remember we we did a sort of a version of that because I'm originally a criminologist and I, mm. I took a chap into school who'd spent 25 years in prison. And I remember people in the audience were scared when he came into the room and by the end of the session, after they'd heard his story, they were so empathetic. They were offering him jobs. <laughs> you know, and I remember people still stopped me in the street and said, do you remember that? They were so moved by his story that any prejudice they may have had mm. or assumptions made about that particular person, it just reminded me so much. Your book reminded me of the importance of of letting people tell their stories and schools mm. can provide a vehicle for that, you know, in a very powerful way. Absolutely. And and the, the idea of empathy, I think, is something that we underestimate in our society, that if we can't empathise with people, that's where we get the far-right radicalisation. That's where we get the lack of understanding. That's where we get that prejudice. And I'm conscious that human stories can only go so far in all of this, that there has to be then some imperative for structural change. But people are more likely to move towards that if they have that empathy in the first place. So let's talk about language. I mean, it's mm -hmm. going to be, you know, we could spend five hours talking about the importance of language. But when we're talking about the school context, I think certainly from my experience of listening to teachers and working in schools, sometimes teachers are just bamboozled with mm -hmm. how much language, you know, is changing, how to keep up with terminology and what and what's going on whilst, you know, doing their everyday jobs. But particularly in this area, I can understand that teachers can feel a bit overwhelmed and, and need a little bit of guidance um, mm. around the terminology, particularly with these issues. Yeah. And I think, and not to make myself sound like some dinosaur, you know, teachers have been in the profession as long as I have or longer, perhaps less confident with the terminology that you start to see in schools around diversity than some of our younger teachers. And I have to give credit to teachers here because they are constantly adapting. You know, we have acronyms coming out of our ears. So it's not too much of a leap to say, actually, can you become more comfortable with the language of LGBT, for example? You know, the acronym, some people accuse it of being kind of alphabet soup, which I think is a kind of almost contemptuous way of looking at it. I, I, I actually think it's quite simple that, you know, in the way that we acquire new language all the time in our vocabulary, it's not that hard to then go on and learn a few more letters and learn what they mean for our students. So in general, teachers are very receptive to learning about things that they perhaps didn't learn about when they were in school. So I know there's a lovely little section of your book actually looking at this area in detail. What are the sort of main acronyms that you would like teachers to stay a little bit more up to date with? You've mentioned mm. LGBTQ+, plus, mm. etc. But what about other acronyms certainly to do with race and ethnicity that mm. have changed recently or need to be updated? 
Well, I think it's just being aware of some of the debates around it. So there's no definitive way of describing people with black or brown skin or of different ethnicities and races in this country, other than well, certainly the kind of official paperwork uses black Asian minority ethnic BAME. But around that is such a debate around whether that is a fair acronym that encompasses the range of experiences, the range of identities that are other than white, I suppose. And rather than being absolutely up to date with everything, I think it's just making sure that you are keeping up with the discourse around it so that you're aware of some of the pitfalls of the language that appears when it comes to race in particular. So, you know, there's a debate about whether we should be using the words global majority and Rosemary Campbell Stevens coined that phrase because people of colour in this country are a global majority as opposed to an ethnic minority. You then end up going around in circles as to which terms you use. And, and I understand the frustration that people might feel with that, with feeling like, oh, I can't keep up. But ultimately, it's just an ongoing debate. And in the same way that we keep up with politics and we learn the new faces and the new policies, it's exactly the same as that, really. And the key thing is motivation. If we're motivated and we care and we want people to feel included and you know we want to create a better and fairer society, then all of us need to just care about the language that we use and mm. care that it's not offending anyone at the very least. I think that one of the things that is so simple and so important and something I've thought a lot about myself is what you talk about in schools, you know, the importance of getting people's names right. Mm. I just wanted to dwell on that for a moment. Uh, there was a very interesting student recently on Twitter who'd attended his university graduation. Mm. And to hear your name incorrectly pronounced at mm. that pivotal point is devastating and yeah. so unfair and so totally avoidable. So, so let's just dwell on that for a moment and why it's so important. Well, I think it stems from personal experience as well as my experience in the classroom. My name is not particularly difficult, but people find it hard or certainly kind of shy away from pronouncing it or saying it out loud correctly. So my actual name is Bunsi and it's spelled B-A-N-S-I. And my whole life it's been mangled by people who've, you know, just done insane things with the sounds of my name, kind of reading it out loud. And, you know, when you think about what a name is, it's the immediate connection between two people. And if somebody is mangling your name on a regular basis, there is something wrong with the connection between two people there. And I will see children in my classes with names that are from perhaps Africa or even Ireland. And, and they will say, well, you just call me something else. And, <laughs> and actually, I can see the frustration. I know that frustration. But ultimately, it's your name. It's your heritage. And it is a part of your identity in a way that not almost nothing else is. And, you know, when you find that you're nervous about saying your name out loud for fear of either laughter or it being mispronounced, you do find it very difficult to connect with the world around you. And this is why I included the anecdote about Uzo Maka Aduba from Orange is the New Fruit, who had the same experience. She went home to her mum and said, mum, can you call me Zoe? And her mum said, why do you want me to call you Zoe? And she said, no one can pronounce my name. And her mum said, well, if people can pronounce Tchaikovsky and Dostoevsky, they can pronounce Uzo Amaka, which was a wonderfully wise thing to say. 
But ultimately, it's about embarrassment, isn't it? I don't want children to be embarrassed of who they are or the names that their parents have given them in this kind of mistaken belief that it's not cool or it's inferior in some way. So yeah, I do encourage teachers to rehearse, ask, you know, acknowledge that you might get it wrong, but that you want to get it right. There's ways to, to move forward with that. Well, I can model that now. So I need to double check. I've pronounced your name. So you you said your proper name is, can you correct yeah, me? It's Buncey. 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 Yeah. So I've called you Benny. That's my nickname. <laughs> Okay, so but I can I, be excused I, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, absolutely. So. No, I go by Benny, but my actual okay, name is Okay, okay. You're <laughs> absolutely correct about Irish names. A lot mm. of my, my nieces have Gaelic names and yeah. people have no... But I have great sympathy with someone trying to pronounce a Gaelic name. Yeah, so often yeah. at the end of the email, it'll say, this is how you spell it phonetically, which mm. I think is incredibly useful. But I think the thing that we can agree on is that it, it's important just to say, look, I've no idea how to pronounce your name. How do we do that? So, yeah. so that would be helpful. Yeah. Okay. I love how your book also talks about the difference between race and ethnicity. Mm. Uh, there's a lovely section on that. And it just, every time I read something in your book, I was just stopping and thinking about it and really mm. and asking myself, do I really understand the difference? And asking my children, mm. did they mm. understand the difference? Because it's not just about a PSAG module. You could just take your book, take a little section of it and ask a class that question. And yeah. have that debate. So just talk a little bit about race and ethnicity and what you've said about it in the book that's so useful here, the different terminology. Yeah. So race, I think people think of as a quite simple term, but it's incredibly complex and certainly not all encompassing in the way that people kind of use it in, in everyday parlance. So the misconception around race, that it is some sort of set of biological markers. And over the years, certainly kind of with through academic study, we've come to realise that actually race is a social construct. You know, you are racialized as white or racialized as black, like the set of ideas that are associated with those markers. And of course, you know, there are some that are racialized positively and some that are racialized negatively. But race is, you know, the kind of impressions people have of you. And it might be kind of related to your skin tone. It might be related to your religion as well. But there's certainly a lot of conflation around religion and race, especially when it comes to Judaism, which really is so complex and subject to a lot of debate. And ethnicity is the kind of cultural markers that come with an identity so that you can be black, but you could also be ethnically identify as a particular kind of ethnicity within that. And that's more about how you dress and the food that you eat and the, the kind of associated activities that go with your identity. And I think people just assume that race is one thing, that you know, your race will mark out how you eat, who you worship, what kind of clothes you wear, but actually it's your ethnicity that does that. And the complexity of it is actually fascinating. And, and you do your research and you realise the evolution of kind of racial ideas, you know, how race has formed over the, the centuries and you see some really insidious kind of theories about what race is and then you start to see people unpicking that over over the centuries and, and then you start to get to that sense of oh I understand this now race is built up of the, the perceptions we have of people rather than what they actually are. So let's talk back to school I know that one of the most helpful aspects of your book is that there are little stop gaps within mm -hmm. it where teachers can actually reflect 
And it's all very well saying we need to, you know, understand the language of diversity when we're building an inclusive school. But there have to be actionable steps. And mm. I love these little stop gaps in the book, these little reflective points where mm-hmm. you ask the teacher to think about phrases like, I understand the variety of terms used to describe race and ethnicity in the mm. UK and internationally. Are they confident in that? Mm. If not, what can they do? I know how to explain the history of terms related to LGBT status and their cultural significance. Mm. Do you, do you not? I can explain the variations in language associated with disability. I mean, these are, inc- I mean, you could just take that page and mm. run an inset on it internally yeah. as a school. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And people have, and, and that's the, the great thing about the series and my editor. Yeah. You know, they were very, very practical in their approach because there are lots of books of theory out there, but teachers are very time poor. And what you want is for them to be able to pick up a book and say, okay, here's the snippet of the things that you need to know. Now reflect and, and work out what your gaps are. And once you've started to do that, you can you sort of go down a rabbit hole, don't you? You kind of go, oh, hang on, do I know that? Well, what is the terminology? And I wanted to allow teachers to go and do their kind of self-directed work. Because one of the things that happens, unfortunately, is when something is difficult, you expect the person you deem to be an expert, which happens to be either a, a Black or Asian person or somebody with a disability, to, to tell you the answers. And actually, that's pretty wearing. So the book allows you to go away and, and self-direct, which I was really pleased with. And it provides so much scaffolding for the key conversations. And I think I think it left me with the desire to be more curious about these issues and a little bit of guilt that maybe I haven't been as curious as I, mm. as I should have been, you know. So that was my, my sort of overall feeling. <laughs> the other thing is I thought it was incredibly important little book, not just for schools, but for, mm. for corporate organizations. I mm. think it's a very useful book that teams within corporates can also use as a template for sort of scaffolding important conversations as well. Mm. And also within family life. So I was fascinated by the little section within the book on the difference between equality and equity. (laughs) I ended up having quite a (laughs) massive debate with my 15 and 13 year old and my husband. We were all getting into knots and we're going back to the book. So tell us a little bit about that section and, and just introduce us to that debate as well. I think it's one of the most lucid ideas in this work. When you understand it, you really understand why this work is important because fundamentally it explains that there is disadvantage and that there is advantage. And when we think about equality, I think equality is this wonderful concept where everybody is the same and everybody is treated the same. And in our society, we know that we're not all the same. And you have to acknowledge that there are some people who are disadvantaged for reasons that they cannot control. They're disadvantaged because of their ability status. They're disadvantaged because of their sexuality or because of their race or because of their gender. And if we start to say, well, we're going to treat everybody the same, it's like saying, I'm going to give everybody a shoe and I'm going to give everybody the same size pair of shoes and expect people to walk around in those shoes and and feel completely comfortable. So equality is giving everybody a pair of shoes, regardless of who they are. Equity is about giving them a pair of shoes that fits. 
and acknowledging their starting points. Because if somebody's starting point is so far behind somebody else's, you cannot treat them the same. And people really struggle with this concept because it means that if you have disadvantage, sometimes you don't get something. So the best example I can think of is the LGBT History Month. So, you know, people will say to me, well, why don't we have a straight history month? And quite often you want to pick up a map and point to it and say, can you point to a country where you can be executed for being straight? You know, that's why we need an LGBT history month or the International Women's Day debate that happens every year. Why can't we have an International Men's Day? To which I usually answer, it's November the 19th. And tell me what disadvantage men have that we have to mitigate by having a a day of, of recognition. And so equity is acknowledgement of disadvantage and acknowledgement that people have different starting points and meeting people where they are. And if we meet people where they are, we're much more likely to treat them fairly. And I think equity is a word that you can associate with fairness. And yeah, that might mean if you have an advantage, you don't get some attention. But ultimately, we've got to go with whose house is burning. And if your house isn't burning, you don't need a fire engine. Yeah, I love it. I love it. (laughs) Do you remember that video that was so powerful a few years ago where it showed children at the start of a race Mm, mm. and they're all starting the race? And then suddenly I remember showing it to my children. They realized, Mm. oh, that they're much more in an advantageous state because of particular factors, you know, Mm, and mm. I started, it it opened up that dialogue in family life as well about the difference between equity and equality. And I think that was an interesting, it had quite an impact, didn't it? People, when they have that kind of visual metaphor in front of them, they understand it a little bit more Mm. clearly. Absolutely. And the debate is difficult because, you know, people will say, well, if you're a poor white working class child, you don't have advantage. And it's really difficult because I I understand the disadvantage that comes with poverty, but that disadvantage is not caused by that child's race. And, you know, when you, when you think about in those terms, it suddenly becomes clear that that disadvantage that's caused by things that you cannot control or you cannot change about yourself, that's the kind of disadvantage that we need to be thinking about. And that's what we need to actually kind of set up our structures to support because we've got to recognise there are some disadvantages that come from prejudice, that come from structural racism, that come from years of beliefs about particular types of people and it needs dealing with. I remember yesterday on Twitter, a lady was saying, if you don't have to think about the color of your skin when you're booking Mm. a holiday and how people might respond to it in that particular country, you know, or a friend of mine thinking about which countries he and his partner could go to as a Mm. same sex couple, you know, we have to sort of acknowledge the fact if we don't, if we're not in that situation and we have the privilege of just Mm. doing whatever we like without thinking about how people will respond to us, that's quite a privilege, isn't it? But it's, it is. I think from the parenting side, it's getting our children to think about these issues. Certainly your book Mm. allowed me to have those conversations. So that's, that's interesting. I'm pleased. You make the point that school cultures, that's a big term, isn't it? School culture that embrace diversity that can't be created overnight. And When I read that, you know, often I'm contacted by, you know, pastoral leads or people in school who've heard, you know, dreadful language, racist language, sexist language, misogynistic Mm. language in the in the playground and the staff room, you know, and they want to solve it. They want to fix it. And it's just so hard, isn't it? Because Mm. it's everyone's job 
yeah, to care absolutely. about these issues. It's not that per pastoral leads job <laughs> or everyone has to want the school culture is just not just made up of a few people. And, mm. you know, it takes time. And as you point out, it's not just up to individuals alone, is it? No, absolutely not. And this is where I go back to this idea that traditionally the work has been done by people with protected characteristics because it's their lived reality. So in a school, if you're an LGBT member of staff, you'll run the Pride Club, you'll do the the Pride Awareness, you'll do the assemblies. But that's exhausting and not sustainable. And so when I work with schools, you know, I talk about kind of systemic change. And where does that start? Well, that doesn't just start with the head. That starts at governance level or multi-academy trust level. What's the commitment to equity that that organisation is making? That's not just something that's in a policy that's put to one side once it's approved and renewed and reviewed, that actually filters down into everyday actions. And cultures are built on not just beliefs, but people's actions on a day-to-day basis. So what happens in the corridor when you hear the term gay used as an insult? Who hears it and who challenges it? What's the policy on that? What's the policy on how racial slurs are dealt with? What's the policy on how sexual harassment is dealt with for girls in school? And, you know, these things have to be built into the structures and then lived and actually practiced on a day-to-day basis, not just by an individual, as you said, but by the staff, because it's what they believe, it's who they are. And when you get that sense of who you are, that this is actually a part of our identity as an organisation, that's when cultures start to shift, I think. And the consistency, you Mm. have to have consistency of approach. And, you know, there must be circumstances where colleagues feel maybe their own colleagues aren't on board with some of these approaches. And that, you know, is another challenge as well. Yes. Yeah, certainly my experience shows that there are people who are willing to come with you on this journey and there are some people who are not and that's inevitable and you know far be it for me to try and convince the unconvincible but I think when you get that tipping point where most of the staff are on board then it you know it's much more likely to become embedded in a culture and ultimately if then you don't fit into the the culture of a school you vote with your feet and if that's not the place that you know you want to work because it is I don't know, inclusive, equitable, then that's up to you to make a decision whether you want to be there or not. I think I was reflecting reading your book on the importance. We often associate these sorts of themes with secondary school, but it's mm. so important to begin this journey at primary school level, isn't it? Prep Absolutely. Level. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that I work in an all through, so I have firsthand experience of what that means. And, you know, I think just starting with that classroom or even the beginning of the journey I'm a big fan and I know that you talk about this in the book about sort of self-disclosure as a teacher Mm -hmm. and what it means to build rapport with the families that you work with and Mm -hmm. and you know if somebody hears for example my accent and I was a teacher the parents have every right to say gosh where's that accent from yeah what's your background (laughs) yeah so I think that the getting to know and caring about the families that we're working with is so important and it made me think about you know that diverse classroom you know Mm. understanding uh, stories and different family forms and Mm. under caring I love that idea in the book about the global board Mm -hmm. you know what are the cultures that our families bring to the school Mm -hmm. and the pride in that and different family forms etc etc and I, I love that idea of that sort of 
celebrating diversity, but at the level of beginning that journey earlier Mm. on. Absolutely. I mean, when you look at primary school children, they've already started to form their views about the world. They form them very, very early. And, you know, children are making judgments on race and gender and and ability very, very early on. And and if we never address those things, if we never start to celebrate difference or, or diversity, then some of those ideas become entrenched. So it is important to start it early. And it does feel very surface, this idea of, you know, kind of global boards and getting to know each other. But ultimately, it's the starting point that means that you can have more difficult or complex conversations later on. So it really is a curriculum around diversity, I think. One of the things I'm really happy about in my own parenting is that my children have so many friends from completely different backgrounds. And, you know, growing up in Northern Ireland, we didn't have that sort of Mm. exposure to different people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it was a very segregated society. But it's so exciting when my children, you know, understand lots of different religions and, Mm. you know, can tell me and guide me on who can eat what because of their, you know, religious background and they care about it. And they have their birthday parties and yeah. I love it. You know, it's exciting. So going back to another point that would be very relevant for teachers is seating plans in the classroom. <laughs> now, oh, and this is just such a granular but exciting topic to talk about. You know, seating plans, everybody seems to have an opinion about. But talk to me about, in your view, why they matter so much with regard to this issue. Well, I think it's that kind of, first of all, on a very basic teaching level, it's the idea that you are in control of your classroom and that, you know, children sitting where they like is not necessarily the way forward in your room. You know, we do seating plans for all sorts of reasons, for academic reasons. Some people do it for behavioural reasons. But for me, it really struck home when I I saw a a lesson with uh, year 11 students, so 16 year olds who, you know, very independent and they were an incredibly well behaved class. And I just watched them gravitate towards people of their own culture or race. And it was almost like having, you know, six different silos in a room. You know, there was a, a table of Muslim girls. There was a table of our Roma boys. There was a table of our white British children. And I thought, isn't that interesting? And I started to do some more work on this and, and doing some reading about it. And there's a book called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Beverly Daniel Tatum. It's an American text. And this phenomenon is not something I, you know, is just, that's just happening in the classroom that, that I'm in. It's happening all over schools that people gravitate to people who are like them. But it occurred to me that actually by doing that, we're starting to segregate our society in, in lots of different ways, you know, and I grew up in Leicester. And everybody thinks of Leicester as this really multicultural space where, you know, it's so integrated. It's amazing. But the reality is the Hindu population live in the Hindu part of town. The Muslim population live in the Muslim population part of town. And, you know, everybody else is scattered everywhere else. And, and, you know, you get that kind of separation, even in cultures that are seen or cities that are seen as very, very multicultural. And I think a seating plan can really kind of start to deliberately mix children in ways that they perhaps might be out of their comfort zones, actually. You know, if you're sitting next to somebody who is completely culturally different from you, you might have to ask their name. You might have to learn how to pronounce their name. You might have to learn to collaborate with them. You might have to learn to have a conversation. And for some of our children, that is actually really difficult. You know, they stick to their own and there are lots of reasons why they do. But I think it's important for teachers to facilitate better communication between cultures and races and abilities and sexualities. So yeah, it might seem like a really 
odd granular detail, but for me, it's just a starting point as to how we have these conversations and how we can bring societies together. Absolutely. And you see the same kind of sticking together of social mm. groups at universities as well. So it's, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's great that we can, you know, the power of the classroom mm. isn't it, to change things and to set the tone. The other thing I was very interested in, you know, there's so much to talk about, but the role of the teacher encouraging diverse voices in the classroom mm. and being mm. conscious of things like gender inequality. I've, mm. I've often come across teachers, certainly at secondary school, who are fascinated by the dynamic within the classroom yeah. where, you know, often the boys will shout the loudest, put their hands up quicker. And, you know, I'm not familiar with those co-ed environments. I mm. haven't mm. gone to a single sex school, but it's something, again, the subtleties of that are very, very important to, and, you know, very much linked to that idea of inclusive education, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, gender is something that you can see enacted, certainly gender roles enacted in classrooms from a very, very young age. So the research shows that girls are much more likely to be interrupted by other girls, as well as teachers of either gender and particularly boys. And, you know, you'll see that in classrooms where, you know, girls start to become much quieter as they grow older. And there's some conditioning going on there around, you know, who is allowed to talk, who is allowed to have a voice and to express an opinion. And if that opinion is in any way shaky or lacking in confidence, then it's okay to interrupt, to interject, to fill in the gaps or to disagree. And when we think about the dynamics of gender in our classrooms, you know, we come back to the seating plan idea that gender is often used as a, a weapon in the teacher's toolbox. So I will put the naughty boy next to a very quiet girl so that she in some way will contain him. Or I will, you know, put the boys closer to the front so that because, you know, their behaviour is worse. And I'm generalising, of course. And the girls can be pushed out to the edges and the sides. And you start to see that dynamic then being replicated at university. Certainly, I saw it in my university seminars around interruptions and, and who had a voice. And then you see it in boardrooms and, you know, in offices and meetings. And so actually this idea of being more conscious of gender and how gender and, and voice are connected in the classroom is hugely important to ensure a more equitable society. And I think that you can present some of this material to older teenagers and, and ask them, survey them even within your own classroom and say, look, you are given a chance to talk. Do you mm. feel uh, where are the barriers? I think you can do a lot of work in terms of you know, working with the young people themselves and raising their own consciousness about these issues, do you think? Absolutely. And, you know, some schools have really gone down that route when thinking about student voice and have used questions around, you know, how confident do you feel in expressing your opinion? Are you interrupted? All of these things. So the sense that teachers are able to have these conversations with students fills me with such joy because actually they are, they are the stakeholders. This isn't work that's being done to them. It should be work that's being done with them and with families and with communities. And so it absolutely makes sense to have these conversations with them. Equally, family culture, what's going on in family culture, you know, mm. is the gender equity present in our own family culture? You know, do mm. we serve our sons first for dinner? Mm. I met a lovely little girl recently who, who was able to tell her father that she doesn't feel he listens to her because he's always interrupting her. And she's only yeah. sort of 10 or 11. I thought, wow, you wow. Know, <laughs> it's fantastic. That she, and he brave. was a loving, a loving, wonderful father. And he was like, oh, my God. 
goodness, I'm yeah. shot, you know, being able to inject family life and dynamics with that amount of reflection and mm-hmm. respect, I think is incredibly interesting. We all have a role to play. That's the thing. None of us are perfect. And, you no. know, none of these school cultures, family cultures are, are perfect either. But, um, no. you know, I think moving the conversation on a little bit, I was mm-hmm. very, very interested, and I've mentioned this earlier, about the application of your book to corporate organisations. Is mm-hmm. that sort of work that you've ever got involved with as well as working in schools? I haven't. My work has been very much in schools at the moment. And, you know, that's not to say that I wouldn't work with corporate organisations, but because I am a working deputy head teacher, you know, that it makes sense for me to sit in that space and the work is never really done. And I work four days a week in school and now have one day a week where I am doing this consultancy work. So on a capacity level, <laughs> there isn't there isn't the capacity at the moment, but that no. doesn't mean it can't apply. And that doesn't mean that we can't have these conversations at corporate level. And I think one of the barriers that certainly I felt when I was setting out with this work is, well, how, how do I know who to get in contact with? you know, who who wants to do this work and you sort of sit and wait for people to come to you rather than kind of approaching them. So maybe long term, you know, it would be something that I can branch out into. Well, we've got a lot of work to do in schools for starting. Yes. Uh, I think this is always a word that's a bit scary, certainly for a non-teacher, but the word curriculum. There is so much work that is done, but also has to be done to make our curriculums in school more inclusive. And it is, it can feel very overwhelming, I'm mm. sure, for, for a lot of people. But give us some tangible examples. Say you're a maths teacher in a mm-hmm. secondary school and you, you're listening to this and you, you know, you want to bring all these lovely ideas into your work. But where would they begin with that journey of thinking about their own curriculum and making it as inclusive as possible? So, I mean, maths is always used as the example of how to do this work. How how can I do this work as the marker of impossibility, if you like. But actually, you know, I think in, in some ways we've forgotten the story of maths and the story as we know it of maths is that it's a very white Western European post-Enlightenment endeavour. And I often say to maths teachers, why don't you look a little bit further back? Because there's a provenance to your subject. There's a narrative to your subject that actually through things like such as colonization have been lost in the annals of history. And if you look at one of the examples I use in my book is this idea of the origin of zero. You know, zero is a fundamental concept in mathematics. And yet, if you ask a child who invented zero, you know, they might point to Einstein, you know, somebody who looks like a traditional mathematician, according to our society. Well, actually, well, zero is a, an Eastern concept, possibly Brahmagupta in India and Chinese scholars as well, kind of claiming that space. And this sense that maths is not just for, you know, white British people who look white British. And, you know, this idea that maths is actually a global endeavour. How can we weave that into the curriculum? And, and there's that kind of sense of, well, what are Arabic numerals? Do we understand what Arabic numerals actually mean? Because there are lots of children who have lost that knowledge. So where does that sit in the curriculum? I know that there is a, a need to teach the processes of maths and to understand the processes of maths. But couching it within a story allows us to diversify that aspect of the curriculum so that children feel a connection with the subject. Certainly, if I'd known that people of my heritage, Indian heritage, were involved with mathematics from a very, very early age, I possibly would have been more engaged with the idea of maths. So I think it's important to see yourself and to be seen within the curriculum. 
Absolutely. And having role models that are visible within Mm. these particular subjects is incredibly important as well. And that's something I think on the parenting side we can pay more attention Mm. to. I love your idea of helping children see themselves as global citizens, which Mm. is referenced in the book. But there are barriers that can hinder this happening that can often happen within the sort of the school environment. And, you know, one of the things I'm interested in is the sort of demise of school exchange trips, which is really sad. In Ireland, we were always doing exchange trips Mm. to different countries and they were the richest experiences of finding Mm. out other people lived in different ways, ate different food, you know, (laughs) interacted differently as families. But also things like microaggressions that that Mm. young people can experience. So talk us through that a little bit. So the idea of microaggressions, you know, the sort of death by a thousand cuts syndrome, isn't it? It's the assumptions that are made about identity, the assumptions that are made about culture, the assumptions that are made about gender or sexuality that mean that you're constantly put in a box. And it's very hard to see yourself as a fully fledged human being when you're constantly being told that there might be something wrong with you or there might be something different about you. One of the things that often happens to me is people say, well, you're very well spoken. And I'll often say, well, what does that mean? I'm very well spoken <laughs> for what? Gosh. For an Asian woman. Wow. Or, you know, the, the microaggression that happens again with, you know, from a place of affection rather than, and, and respect and love, but really misguided. Benny, you're just like one of us, you know, you know, normal. Oh, <laughs> I'm thinking, Ooh. right. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Well, would you treat me differently if I was a heavily accented with an Indian accent wearing a sari? Would you, would you not be connecting with me in some way? And it's again, it's that sense of how do we fit into the world and when I think about global citizenship there's a narrowing of identity I think that has happened over the last five or six years particularly when it comes to being British what does that actually mean and there are obvious reasons for that I think but you know for our children in this world in which the internet connects us so quickly how do you see yourself placed in the global history you know in terms of your nation but also your race or culture or ability or sexuality? How do you see yourself placed? And I do think it's sad that we can't put children in these immersive experiences, such as exchange trips, because I've seen some transformative work happen where children who are very narrow-minded and insular, because they have been brought up that way, because that's the society they've lived in, have suddenly realised that there is a much bigger world than them. And it's been fascinating I've got to point out that in the absence of exchange trips, because they are rarer these days, there are organisations that are working to bring that experience into schools. There's an organisation called Lifter, L-Y-F-T-A, who provide immersive sort of virtual reality experiences for different cultures and, and kind of global communities. And that's something that schools are using to try to create that sense of this is who we are and these are who these people are and here are the connections between us. Oh, it sounds brilliant. I can't wait to look it up. Mm. So when we're talking about recommended groups, organizations, mm. Twitter accounts for anyone interested in diverse education, obviously starting with your own. So you can tell us about your Twitter <laughs> account. But just off the tip of your tongue, you know, if people are interested in, in these sorts of areas that you've mentioned mm. one organization, but what would be the big ones that I think you mentioned some in your book, actually? Mm. There are lots. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There, yeah. You know, there's so many good organizations that 
I've worked with over the years and certainly have involvement with. So the grassroots organisations on Twitter around identity. So Women Ed, at Women Ed, was one of the first, I think, and my my co-founder of Diverse Ed, Hannah Wilson, was one of the co-founders of Women Ed. And then we had the BAMED Network, at BAMED Network UK, and they were talking about ethnicity and race in schools. LGBT Ed, again, talking about LGBT issues and Disability Ed UK was a, a grassroots disability in education organisation. So those are the big ones. And then Hannah and I founded Diverse Educators, which was a kind of intersectional space for all of those identities to exist. And we've been going since 2017. And in recent months, we published the Diverse Educators a Manifesto which is a book that's around education and the protected characteristics. So age and education, pregnancy and maternity and education, race and education. And we had 125 contributors to that book. So it's a mass edited book. And it's been really, really successful. And we're really pleased with the reactions we've had to it. And it's now on university reading lists. And I think that's the impact that we're trying to have. So if you did want to look us up, we're at www.diverseeducators.co.uk. And we do training and we provide content on curriculum, provide toolkits for lots of different areas. And it's a growing space. We have a a network on Mighty Networks, which has 1,500 people on it. And we're we're hoping to to go even further than that. But yeah, those are the organisations that I would really recommend. And I have to say, you know, because there's been a lot of controversy about Stonewall recently, I have to go back to my absolute respect for Stonewall for the work that they've done over the decades in support of LGBT rights. And that is very much LGB with the T. And so as much as there is negative publicity about uh, Stonewall from people who are trans exclusionary, I am a firm believer in their work and I'm hugely appreciative of the the input they've had in schools over the years. Oh my goodness, there's so many fantastic links that you've mentioned there that we're going to put in our podcast notes. So thank you so much for that. Now, lastly, I don't know if you're comfortable answering a few questions that has been submitted when we told our parent and teacher community we were interviewing you. Would you be happy to answer some questions off the cuff? Absolutely, go for it. (laughs) So here we go, Benny. My daughter would be the only girl of dual heritage entering her secondary school in Kent. I'm worried about this. Do you think I should let this happen or look elsewhere for a school? Would it help build her resilience or simply make her the target of bullies? That's an interesting question, isn't it? It is. And it's a really tough one because on one hand, you want to believe that all spaces are safe for your children and that a school is a school. But we know very much that particularly if you are the only person of colour in a school, then that will mark you out as different and that some people will absolutely embrace that and some people will not. And certainly I've heard of some real horror stories, not just in, you know, not particularly in Kent, but in lots of other places of children being the only person of their heritage in the school and then facing microaggressions and sometimes outright racist comments. I think it's important to do the research on the school. You know, what does the website look like? Is it a school that embraces diversity? Is it a school that has policy on racist abuse and and homophobic abuse? Do they make it really clear that that's who they are? So, you know, doing the research on the school will help you then make a decision as to whether it's the right place. I don't think you should ever throw a child in to make them more resilient. If it transpires that there are things happening that are unsavory that are racist that would uh you know are, are potentially damaging then 
it is very important to be insistent about having the conversation with school staff about this and asking what the plan is around educating the children and the staff as to how to deal with this properly. Because it's not just about punishment, it's about education long term. But it's a very difficult situation because you often feel as the only person of colour in a space that you have to be the role model for everybody who looks like you or to be the teacher about your culture. And that could, like I said, can be exhausting. And being the one person who answers a hundred questions, yeah, you know, yeah. any sort of, you know, peer Absolutely. support. And, and I think it's, you know, it, again, it's in the culture, isn't it? It's about what the school says about how they deal with that kind of thing and how they then actually deal with any uh, potential problems that comes up. You know, there's no reason that you can assume that she's going to be the target of bullies, but we all know how the school system works as well. If she has another choice and she chooses to be somewhere else, that's different. But I don't think we should be making that choice for her either. Yeah, so lots to think about there. Mm. Benny, what is your advice if a classroom teacher, this is a classroom teacher asking the question, regularly hears racist banter in the playground or corridors of a school? Can you recommend how we can change that? Gosh, it's a big question, isn't it? (laughs) It is, but this is the work that I do. So, you know, I often go into schools and talk to staff about how to deal with that kind of language and certainly kind of listening for the kind of language that is racist and understanding what is racist and what isn't, because that can be a misconception in itself. And, you know, if you are regularly hearing this in the classroom, then, you know, absolutely is your right to say as a member of staff in that school, We need to deal with this. So take that to a line manager, take that to a a member of the leadership team and say, what are we doing about this? Because it's not acceptable. And then it's important that staff and governors and leadership team are trained and that then that students are also spoken to. Sometimes, and, and I will say that it's not always intentional. Some children don't have a concept of what racist language looks like. And if it's a case of education, then you have that built-in work that happens either every year or part of the curriculum or even as a one-off if it needs to be. And then if it happens again, then it's deliberate. And then actually that you think about the sanctions. Oh, it's such a good, uh, yeah, I'd love to talk about that in more depth. That's a brilliant question and there's so much to, to think about. Here's another great question. Benny, I'm a black teaching assistant in a predominantly white school. All the cleaners in our school are black, <laughs> a point that our pupils have noticed. I think it's a good idea to highlight this to our pupils and get them thinking about our staff stories, heritage, backgrounds and experiences. Is this a crazy idea? It's a really difficult thing to deal with. I mean, it's certainly something that I have extensive experience of. You know, I worked in a really mixed school in South Hackney and the leadership team was predominantly white and the cleaning and the TA team was predominantly young women who were black. And when you start to point this kind of thing out, the difficulty is you start to point out disadvantage and structural racism and how poverty and race are linked and how fewer opportunities are present for people of of different races. And that can make for some uncomfortable conversations, but that doesn't mean those conversations can't happen. I think it would have to be very, very well thought through how you would approach that. You would need some real support as a teaching assistant as to how to broach that subject with children. Where does it sit? Is it a curriculum issue? Is it, you know, a one-off assembly might not do it. Is there another way around it? Is there a way of thinking about actually, well, can we get them thinking about disadvantage more generally as part of the PSHE curriculum? I would say that there's an ethical issue in pointing out the black cleaners in a school when they may not have a kind of say in that. 
you know, are we talking to them about whether their stories need to be heard? Is it something that they feel comfortable with as well? So there's lots of little nuances around that scenario that I'd be conscious of. But I don't think there's anything wrong with pointing out structural disadvantage and how that is something in our society that's really embedded. But I would have to be very careful about using your own school as a model because, you know, you're an employee, you don't want to appear to be doing something that might kind of put you at risk. But that's why honest conversations with the leadership team are really really important and quite often teaching assistants don't feel confident enough to do that but I certainly think that you know if you have the bravery if you can be as women Ed say 10% braver and have that conversation you might have allies around you who would help you to to make those changes or certainly point out some of the inequalities in your own society. Yeah you're just caring and noticing and being Mm. curious and and even saying you don't know where to start the conversation is important as well Mm -hmm. so it's amazing to think that you're there in the background being able to help us navigate all these issues whether you're a school or parents so listen thank you so much for joining us I'm hoping it's not the last time we speak to you Benny and I'm, I'm hoping to bring more of your work into the world of tilled up education so thank you so much for the work that you do it's inspiring and interesting (laughs) and it's great to be able to lean into it and to signpost people to it so thank you so much for your time today you're welcome kathy thank you for having me this get a grip podcast is brought to you by tilled up education the home of evidence-based tips on parenting family life and education www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in tooled up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the tooled up site. <laughs>